Glad you're here tonight, church family, both in person, those of you who are jumping in on Zoom, grateful for it. We're going to keep trucking through the attributes of God, and tonight we're going to look at, I mentioned last week by means of review, when we look at the attributes of God, there's a variety of ways, there's not one specific way we're told in Scripture, this is how to divide out the attributes of God. Scripture just tells us this is who God is. He's the triune God. We looked at that two weeks ago. He is one God, one being, three distinct co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, Spirit, uh, if, if we want to say that's the, the, the name of each person. Um, we see the triune God from the beginning in creation. We see the triune God uh, acting throughout Scripture for salvation. We see the triune God bringing things to glory in the end. Who is God? Scripture also tells us what is God like, and that's what the attributes of God are. It's the way that God's Word describes it's God telling us what is He like. And so uh, we've chosen to go with the, categor- the categorization of the greatness of God, those attributes which, uh, when we look at them, they make our mind hurt. They make us go in awe and wonder, wow, look at the vastness, the greatness, the majesty of God. God is clearly beyond us. And, and those attributes are things that we don't, we don't possess similarities to. When we come to tonight, we look at the goodness of God. We're looking at attributes that are much more easy for us to understand and, and grasp and connect to because we either see them manifested in a variety of broken ways in the world or in, uh, Lord willing, as it should be, redeemed ways in the church, but we see them clearly in how God relates with us as uh, humankind. I'll just remind you when we talk about attributes, there is no one attribute that is more a part of God than any other attribute. The attributes of God are not things that God adds on to Himself, as if God exists apart from the attributes. The attributes are not things that God arbitrarily chooses. The reality is God is His attributes And He is 100% all of His attributes in perfect harmony and unity. That's who God is and what He acts. And so as we walk through this tonight, you'll see on your your cheat sheets um, that I've listed holiness there again. We walked through last week that holiness in, in, in some of the ways it's presented in Scripture seems to be something beyond just an attribute. At the same time, holiness does refer to the fact that God is absolutely morally pure. That is a part of God's holiness. It's not the only thing holiness means, but because it does mean that, we're going to start there uh, tonight with, with what do we mean by the goodness of God. So in holiness, in terms of absolute moral purity, what we mean is God is untouched and unstained by evil in the world, and He does not in any sense participate in it. In Leviticus, he writes, he says, "'For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy.'" He repeats this uh, multiple times in Scripture. We see it in the New Testament in 1 Peter 1. James 1.13 tells us God is not tempted by evil. So He is completely pure morally. He's also not tempted by evil. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone.'" which on a word of practical level means God may allow you and I to face temptation that we grow and are tested in our faith, but it's never God tempting us. God doesn't dangle things in front of us to tempt and to lure us and to trick us into sin. That is not how God operates. Job 34 verse 12 says, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice, meaning it's, it's impossible 
Uh, Habakkuk 1, 12 and 13 are, uh, says uh, that, God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look upon wickedness with favor. So there is nothing about sin and everything that manifests from sin, injustice, wickedness, evil, death. There is nothing about sin that God in any way has any pleasure, any delight, and has anything to do with more eternally than water and oil that cannot mix, God and sin cannot mix. In fact, not only that, but the presence of sin because of who God is, as we'll see more tonight, demands that God justly and rightly respond and deal with sin. It cannot be allowed to stand. It cannot be allowed to stay. And in this way, we see that God is already distinct from all of the false gods that we create as, as humankind. Now, you and I living in a 20th and 21st century Western American culture, you and I don't see, uh, when we think of other gods, we think of other gods in the form of uh, the God of work, the God of money, that, right? We think of things, it's not as common for us to think of, of, of gods in the way that maybe we, we read Scripture and we read about Baal and Asherah. And um, when, you, when you get to the New Testament and you think about Athena or, or Apollo or Zeus or uh, if we use uh, Roman names, Neptune, Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, like, we don't see that. But that, the reality is that's actually more present in the majority of the world. When you go into the Southern Hemisphere and you go into South America and especially in Africa and parts of Southern Asia, there are massive other deities. And in on those deities, you find that most of them, when you dig down, there is a corruption there because they are patterned after us. We made them up. God is different than that because He has no part in sin we also see by the holiness of God that we fall short compared to that holiness. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and therefore fall short of the glory of God. And by fall short, we don't mean we trip just shy of the finish line. We fall eternally short in a chasm that no amount of effort and work can possibly build a bridge across. There's an eternal separation of falling short because God as holy is what we fall short of. So when we measure sin, when we measure, um, or even use a common phrase we use, they're such a good person. Well, by what standard are we measuring? And I'm not saying that you can't say someone is a good, decent human being, but we need to be clear what standard of good and decent are we justifying a person as good and decent? Is it by the standard of that person is generally friendly and they don't try to, to hurt people behind their back and they're a committed friend and spouse? If by that definition is a definition of, of good and decent, then sure, a person can be good and decent. But if by good and decent, we are referencing in a sense of holiness, then no one, no matter how good and decent by the standards of the world, comes close. And we saw that last week as we looked at Isaiah 6. I mean, here's a prophet of God. He sees God in all his holiness. And what is his reaction? His re reaction isn't, wow, I'm just, I just, if I could get a little bit more, I might get up there. 
His reaction is to fall on his face and say, I, I want hell to rip me apart for all eternity because of, of the terror I feel being exposed as a sinful human being in the presence of a holy God. God is holy, holy, holy. This is the foundation of his goodness. And so if God is unstained and untouched by evil, then moving down, we see that God is righteous. He is righteous. And remember, these definitions come, uh, I pulled these definitions from people smarter than myself because they are more succinct. So uh, Wayne Grudem and, and Millard Erickson are where I got uh, these definitions. Uh, some of them are one, some of them are the other, some of them are both. God always acts in accordance with what is right, and He Himself is the final standard of what is right. Righteousness, then, is God's holiness in the term of moral purity that's applied to His relationship with other beings. So God always acts in accordance with what is right. The, the word literally righteousness means there is a, a standard, a line, a bar of rightness. That in order to be right, you measure up with this bar. That's why to be unrighteous is to be out of alignment, fallen short. We see that God is righteous. And if you've got your Bibles, feel free to keep up or not keep up or use your phone or I don't know, maybe you've got, you know, I wonder if someone's invented a deal where your phone can listen to whatever reference the pastor says and automatically pull it up. That'd be pretty genius if no one's figured that out. Uh, Sure, it's out there. If not, maybe one of us should invent it and find a way to market it. Um, the law of the Lord, this is, this is Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. What we find is that the law of God is righteous, that not just God is righteous, but His law is righteous, because His law is a reflection of His very character and nature. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24 uh, but, let not, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. How does God act in response to the earth? Righteousness, righteously. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. By righteous, God, all of God's actions are always right because God is always acting in line with his very being, his very character. And this is key. Do you notice there it says, righteous and upright is he? Not righteous and upright is what he decides. That would say that the basis of what is right and the basis of what is wrong is something arbitrary. That God set up there sometime in eternity past and said, okay, here's a list of all possible actions. These I will pick to be righteous. These I will pick to be unrighteous. Such that if God had so decided, he could have said, well, murder actually is righteous. Righteousness is not arbitrary. The basis for righteousness is not arbitrary. This is key because in other religions, uh, in fact, if you, if, um, uh, if you dig into 
uh, Islam, right and wrong is based on what Allah decrees, not based on who He is. So it's not arbitrary. What's right, and, what's right or wrong is also not based on right or wrong simply because it's God's choice. So it's not right because God decides right, nor is it right because anything God chooses is right. It's actually, beyond that, it's right because it is in line with God Himself because God is right. The basis of righteousness, therefore, is not something outside of God. It is God Himself. So when you hear a statement like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's not that we've fallen short of a standard that somehow is something God's written up or God's chosen, or the standard we've fallen short of is God Himself. That's what righteousness is. And in this way, people have asked the question, does this mean that if the basis of right is God Himself and His very nature, does this in some kind of way create a self-centered God where, where it's all about Him? Well, let me just answer this question. It is all about God. But that doesn't make God selfish because the definition of selfishness is you and I taking anyone or anything and making it all about that person or that thing in place of God. So God cannot be selfish in the sinful way that you and I are selfish because God is perfectly always about himself. And we want it that way because if he were about anything else other or anyone else other than himself, then he would be selfish in the sinful way. It is all about God. It is all about his standard. He is right. The reason we become self-centered is because we put other people and other things, including ourselves, in the place of God. God is righteous, which leads practically into God's justice. God's justice is His official righteousness. It's His expectation that other moral beings walk in line with His standard of righteousness. Remember, what is His standard? Himself. It's that other beings capable of moral choice, right or wrong, walk and live in such a way that they are in line with Himself. And his justice is, is, is that expectation. So look with me. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, the first part is the serpent tricking Adam and Eve into eating of the fruit, which God said, do not. Verse 8, the Lord begins walking in the cool of the day. He's looking for them. They're hiding. Verse 9. They're naked and afraid. We hid. Verse 11, who told you this? Did you eat? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded not to eat? And the man, of course, it gives the excuse, well, the woman you gave to me, she gave it from the, uh, from the tree and ate. Never mind the fact that I didn't do anything to lead her, love her, and stop her from doing it. Um, and the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Never mind the fact that you knew the truth and, and it doesn't matter what the serpent said because we like to pass off our sin as everybody else's fault. But look at what God does. The Lord said to the serpent, because of this, cursed are you. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, you and your seed, and her, or your seed and her seed. You'll bruises, he shall cr uh, crush your head. You will bruise him on the hill. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children. At your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Then to Adam, and he goes on and says, what, what is the part of, what is he doing here? He's dispensing justice because there has been a falling short of walking in line with his standard. When you go to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, 
But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin. What is the wages of sin? The wages of sin is the just, fair, impartial, righteous repayment for sin. What does a life filled with sin earn you fairly? Death. Justice. Uh, we'll come back to uh, come back to a passage. Kind of keep your your finger there in Romans because we'll come back to a passage there. We see God's justice plays out all the way, uh, all the way through the end. Revelation chapter twenty. And I saw the dead, verse twelve, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from these things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. God's justice is God taking the righteous standard that He is and holding moral beings accountable to have walked in it, which also means faithfully executing the right punishment justly for those deeds that have fallen short. He holds the standard. He expects people who represent him to walk in this standard. And in uh, Amos, uh, Amos chapter 5, uh, verse 12, uh, this is one of many places in the Old Testament. He states this, speaking to the leaders of Israel, for I know your transgressions are many and your sin is great. You distress the righteous, you accept bribes, you turn aside the poor at the gate. And God's standard in this is, is that uh, the idea being that God's justice is expected to be lived out and through the life of God's people. That because God is just, His people are to live justly. James chapter 2, verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. What's the famous verse my generation loves to quote? Uh, Walk humbly with our God and love what? Justice. Isaiah chapter 58. It's this incredible chapter. The people of God, they're facing problems. They're, they tell the Lord, they say, they say Lord, we've, we've, we've fasted, we've sought you, we've come, we've worshiped you, but you are not answering. What is the problem? And God said, I'll tell you what the problem is. He says, in the day of your fast, you get gussied all up. You show up to church. You pray the right things. You sing the right songs. You take the right ceremonial actions. But behind the scenes in your everyday life, you are defrauding workers of their honest pay. You are stabbing each other in the back. You are walking in injustice. And so if you want me to hear your cry and restore you, let's fix the real problem. The problem is not that you won't show up and fast. The problem is you won't confess and repent of your injustice because I am a just God. And this is why Romans chapter 3 and the incredible beauty of what God has done in Christ For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift, not as something earned, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. That word will be drilled in your heads forever after the last couple days. In His blood through faith. 
This was to demonstrate, but look down at verse 26. I say of his righteousness at the present time, so he would be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The word justify references righteousness. To be justified by Christ means here's the standard and I am brought up to the standard. But not on my account, on the account of Christ who never failed the standard. It's why when God looks at you and I in Christ, He doesn't see our works, He sees Christ's work. Because our works don't get us a seat at the table. Jesus' work gets us a seat at the table. Jesus' work is what gives us a relationship with the Father. And so our righteousness comes from Christ. And because we have been given Christ's righteousness, which also carries with it freedom from the bondage of sin, the indwelling and sealing and empowering of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God living inside of us, we then not only have the expectation from God that we live righteously and justly, but we actually have the ability to live out His righteousness and justice. And the reason God is just because picture this with me, all right? My, my grandmother, my grandmother was, uh, was murdered. If the day comes when we catch the murderer and we have all the evidence, it's clear as day the murderer is guilty and that murderer comes before the judge and the judge says, got all the evidence, it's clear as day, you're guilty of murder, everybody understands it and then that, that judge goes, you know what though? I'm a real forgiver, go free. All right, every one of us would be hacked if, we have a, if we're a justice person. Because we would go, that's unjust. There was a life taken and that life has not been repaid. Yet sometimes with our own sin, that's how we think God ought to act. If God doesn't deal with sin, then he isn't just. He's a crooked God. And that's why God can be in Christ, what Jesus did on the cross, just and justifier, because for you and I to be forgiven means you and I aren't getting the punishment for our sin. Our sin still needs to be punished, except it doesn't need to be punished because it was. It was punished on Christ's back. And that is why God can be both just. He's just. The payment, the punishment, the fair sentence for my sin has been paid, which is why He is just and He can also justify me, the sinner, and declare me righteous in Christ. It's incredible. It's why we are able to stand before God and have a seat at His table in relationship with Him. So God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is jealous. By jealous, we mean God continually and earnestly seeks to protect His honor. And I'm going to encourage you, His jealousy is a word that you and I will have to detach from the way we typically use jealousy. We, 99% of the time, use jealousy in a, in a negative connotation exclusively. Jealousy is when I see you have something that I want and I think really ugly, nasty things about you having it and me not. But listen to how the Lord speaks of jealousy. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Verse 4. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. 
For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Not only does Jesus, not only this is what God says, he doesn't just say, I am jealous, my name's jealous. And by jealous, it means that God earnestly and continually seeks to protect his honor, which means this. There is only one being who is worthy of all honor and praise, so yes, he should be jealous. You see, you and I can't be jealous because technically you and I deserve hell. If we really want to add up what Scripture says, the the overwhelming deserving of my life has earned me hell. It's earned me death. I deserve nothing contrary to every car commercial on television. But God deserves everything because it's all His. He has every right to deserve everything. And His jealousy means seeking to protect and preserve His honor and His goodness. And it's wonderful that He's jealous because could you imagine an unjealous God? Because there is a way we use the word jealous that's not negative. If I see a guy hitting on my wife, I should get jealous. But not jealous because I'm sinfully craving something that's not mine, but because the one who is my wife is being um, wrongfully sought by another. And if I really love her, if I really care for her, there should be a jealousy in my heart because she's not just any lady, she's my wife. So praise God, God is jealous over our praise because it means God really cares about the fact that it's not good for us to give our praise to that which does not deserve it. He is a jealous God. He is a wrathful God. This is another one we're going to have to probably work even harder to divorce what we think of by wrath in English. By wrath, we mean God intensely hates all sin. God intensely hates all sin. Now, many of us think of wrath... When we think of wrath, we think of the bull in the china closet. We think the red face, the bulging eyes, the veins popping out of the neck, the irate loose, no sense of rationality, taking a baseball bat, smashing everything, going crazy, violent. That's what probably pops in the idea of most of us with wrath. We think of someone driven by just abject hatred. That is not the words for wrath in Scripture. The idea in wrath in Scripture, it is, it is God's settled, firm disposition against sin. So yes, God hates sin in precisely the same way you and I should hate sin. In fact, you and I should hate sin because God hates sin. And notice the, the, the language there. It doesn't say God intensely hates sinners. It says God intensely hates sin which is why the plan of redemption didn't mean eradicating sinners, but it was a plan to free sinners from sin. God hates all sin. If God loves all that is right and good and and all that conforms to His very moral being and character, then it should not be surprising that He would hate everything that is opposed to His character. Deuteronomy 9, uh, verse... It ain't 78. That is a typo. Correct there, Brother Ted. It would be 7 through 8. 
Uh, 7 through 8, uh, Deuteronomy 9, 7 through 8 says this, Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord to God to, your, to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that He would have destroyed you. And, and He goes on from there. We see in Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Even in the most famous chapter of the Bible, for the most famous Bible verse, for God so loves the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In the same passage, this statement is made. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Ephesians 2, chapter 4 says that you and I are by nature, sorry, not 4, verse 2, you and I are by nature children of wrath meaning that by nature we are children of God in the sense of we are creation of God in His image, but as sinners we stand in the place where we are objects of His wrath, His settled disposition against sin, His judgment and justice against sin. And imagine, what would it be like if God did not hate sin? Could you imagine that? oh, God, thank you for this salvation, but God's up there going, oh, I don't care that your grandmother's murdered. I don't care that your spouse cheated in adultery. I don't care that that child was abused. I'm indifferent. I don't want to stir up drama. don't want to cause any conflict. But man, just abide in my sweet love. What kind of love is that for a God who doesn't have any issue with sin? It is a good thing that God has issue with sin. It is a true thing that God's wrath will be poured out on all sin. It is also a true thing that God's heart beats with every fiber of His being to seek to save sinners. Ezekiel. Chapter 33, God's telling Ezekiel the duty of the watchman to call out danger. Now as for you, son of man, verse 10, to the house of Israel, thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgression and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How can we survive? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn back from his way, and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? That is not the statement of a God who's up there excited like a little kid squashing ants to send people to hell. God does send people to hell. It does satisfy his justice because that is the just, fair, right payment for sin. But God's heart is that no one would have to go there, which is why there's the plan of redemption in Christ and the offer to anybody to respond. But the sad reality is, in our broken sinfulness, so many, in fact, I would say the majority of human history for sure, has looked at that offer and said, no, I'm good. And that is grievous. And it grieves the heart of God. Why has God not returned yet? According to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it's not because God's twiddling his thumbs. His slowness is not slow as some count slowness, according to Peter. But God wishes that none should perish and all should know him. It doesn't mean that none will perish. Absolutely some will perish. But God's heart is to give everyone the most opportunity 
to come to know Him. Because God is a God of wrath, He will pour out. Now here's the great truth, church family. As, we, as I've said multiple times, you and I by nature, Ephesians chapter 2, are children of wrath. We walked in line with the prince of the power of air, according to the sons of disobedience that are at work in this world. We lived among them in the lust of our flesh. We indulged the flesh and desires of our mind. We were children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and, and has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the incredible reality, church family, is for you and I as believers, we have nothing to fear of the wrath of God because Jesus drank every last drop of the wrath of God. And I want to be clear on that. And that's why I do pick on the little phrase of, well, the only hell we'll ever know is this earth false. Because this earth hasn't experienced the wrath of God poured out yet. We will never know it. And it cheapens the wrath of God to say struggles in this world are on par with His settled wrath. Struggles in this world are because this world is broken by sin and filled with people broken by sin. This world still is under the influence of the enemy. That, none of that is what God's wrath is. That's His settled just judgment against sin, and you and I will never know any of it because Jesus took all of it. So we shouldn't fear the wrath of God as believers, but we should allow the wrath of God to teach us God takes sin seriously. All sin. He takes sexually immoral sin seriously. Adultery, porn heterosexual, homosexual, whatever you want to fall in that category, includes all of it, anything outside of man and woman in covenant marriage. God takes murder, hatred seriously. God takes defrauding a worker, their rightful pay for a job seriously. God takes tax evasion seriously. Rend unto Caesar what is Caesar's. God takes lying seriously, as we'll see in a second, because he is a being who is fully true. God takes worry seriously and fear seriously, both of which he calls sin. God takes lack of faith seriously. And I harp on some of those because God takes all sin seriously. Our struggle is we only like to take some sin seriously. And the sin that has really ugly masks, oh yeah, that's horrible. But the sin that's disguised as looking really good and delightful and pleasing to our eyes, we can find excuses to justify why it's not really sin. You see, our biggest struggle with the wrath of God is not that God should be opposed to sin. Our biggest struggle with the wrath of God is we don't want God opposed to certain sins we like. Now, switching in a vein, the truthfulness of God. By truthfulness, we mean God is the one true God, and His knowledge and His words are both true and, and the final standard of truth. And there's categories of this. We could call it the genuineness of God. Jeremiah chapter 10, I really miss my little side thumb things at this moment. I used to have them on my old Bible that fell apart. 
I'd always get called out as a kid and, and like Bible look up things. You're cheating. You've got those side tabs. And I really didn't use them, but now I, I'm too old and I wish I had them. Uh, my, my fingers don't move as quick. Uh, look at this in um, Jeremiah chapter 10. Uh, do not learn the ways of the nation. Do not be terrified by the signs of heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are delusion, and because it's wood cut from the forest, the marks of hands to the craftsmen with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow and a cucumber filled are they. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they cannot harm. They cannot do any good. What's he talking about? He's talking about false gods represented by idols made with human hands. In contrast, verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. What we mean by God is the real God, His genuineness is the fact that God is in fact the real God. He's the genuine deal. He's the actual one. He's not fabricated. He's not constructed. He is the actual, real, true, genuine, triune, eternal, alpha and omega God. He's genuine. By truthfulness, we mean his veracity, meaning that not just that God in his being is the one real God, but that anything God says is true. What he says represents the reality objectively, the way things are, and he always speaks truth. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, God is so true that it is factually impossible for God to say something that is not completely 100% factually true. God cannot say anything that is 99.9% true. Impossible. He can only say that which is 100% true. Everything he says is true. Titus chapter 1 Verse 2, when's the last time you had Amos and Titus in one same message? Uh, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ago. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth. In fact, when we talk about truth, why do we believe objectively in objective truth? Because Jesus objectively exists apart from us, and he doesn't only set the standard of true. He is the truth. He himself is the truth. So everything he thinks, everything he says, it's by default true because it's proceeding from him. God always tells the truth. God cannot lie. Not only this, but in this way, God expects you and I to be passionate for truth and honesty. Deuteronomy 25 uh, tell, speaking about Israel measuring things out. He says, you measure it out by truth. 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 2 tells us to put away shameful and untruthful things, manipulative practices. You and I are to be so fiercely loyal to speaking the truth because Jesus is true. And that means on our lives and in day and age of a bajillion articles with a million different, uh, I've made up more numbers there than you can care to count, uh, Social media deals, it should matter to us more than anything to only pass articles that we can verify are true because we really care about truth. It should matter that I don't use exaggeration and use 
sweet little white lies to shift around things to make me look better or to get my way because it's not 100% true. We should never heap false compliments on a person just because that's the thing to do if it's not true. We should care about truth. And I have watched more in the last several years, especially among pastors and leadership all across this country who will manipulate words to certain ends and it doesn't line up with a God who never manipulates words. We should say what we mean. We should mean what we, should, what we say. Now, before you go, well, well, what about like, what about if I'm planning a surprise trip for my wife and she asks and I've got to come up with something? Okay, I think there's a little wiggle room and that would be the wiggle room, okay? <laughs> what about the question of if the government shows up at my house and says, are you hiding people that are illegal? Uh, are you hiding Jews in your house? World War II, can... It's a great question. It's, it would take a whole night to answer that question and we're coming to it. But we're not going to fool that there. Just know in general speaking in life, most of us are not facing those situations. We are facing situations where it's easy to bend the truth to our, to our will instead of just speak the truth. God is faithful, meaning that God will always do what he has said and will fulfill what he has promised. So God only says what is true because he is true. And his faithfulness means that what he says he will do, he always does. He always does, which is why a lack of faith in his word is truly so egregious and an affront to his character because God wouldn't say it if it's not true. He wouldn't say it if he's not going to do it. He wouldn't say it if it's not good. He wouldn't say it if he's not powerful enough to make it happen. God is faithful to his word. An emphasis there. He's not faithful to you and I's twisting of his word. He's not faithful to our misapplication of his word. He's faithful to his word, which is why going back to all the, the, the Bibleology stuff, we got to make sure we're faithful to interpret and apply his word rightly because he's not faithful to our subjectivity. He's faithful to what he said. The flip side is this. When he promises something, you and I can bank on it with unwavering confidence because he'll come through in what he said. Now, here is the caveat. There are some aspects of his faithfulness that in our lives can only be seen over time. Sometimes we struggle with his faithfulness because we expect his faithfulness to be that moment right then and there. And there's a powerful little psalm, Psalm 105. I'm sure it's some... Well, we went through Psalm 105, I think, back last fall on a Sunday. It's this incredible little psalm, and it basically walks through, and you realize God made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to make a great people from you. I'm going to give them a land. I'm going to bless them. And anybody who blesses them, I'll bless. And anybody who hunts them, anybody who curses them, I'll curse. That's an incredible promise. And according to Hebrews 11, Abraham never saw it fulfilled. But he saw it coming. And the reason he didn't question God's faithfulness is because not only did he see it coming, he wasn't just looking for it coming, he was looking past it to Christ, to the ultimate Play. That psalm plays out, and you see all these different ways. You see that, that God takes a small little people, gets them in the land, but that little people can't inhabit the land. They're not big enough. They're not powerful enough. They're not strong enough. And even if God wiped out all the other people supernaturally and gave them the land, guess what? They couldn't keep the land and protect the land and work the land, and they're too small. 
And while they were too small, it says God protected anybody from attacking them. And then he brought them down to Egypt where they ballooned like mosquitoes in a swamp. The Israelites in Egypt, I've seen estimates anywhere from one and a half to four million people at the time of the Exodus. Kind of changes your mind of the kind of people Moses was leading. I've led 40 youth on a hike. I can't imagine leading four million people in the wilderness, especially those Israelites. They were a little cranky. Now they're big enough. But because of the plagues, the Israelites, the, the Egyptians don't just send them out, but they pay them in jewels, tools, weapons, and money to leave and clothes. So now they have weapons for battle, clothes for travel, tools for working, money for commerce, and they're big enough to go inhabit the land. Who, by the way, in God's faithfulness and mercy, God hasn't wiped out that land yet because he was allowing the fullness of time for those peoples to fully reject him, according to what he promises uh, Abraham. Here's the whole point. That whole psalm goes around, and you realize from the point of God's promise to Abraham to the point that that mighty nation inhabits the land is 400 years. God is faithful, but sometimes his faithful plays out over the long haul. And we've got to remember God is faithful in our lives, but sometimes that means he will lead us through the valley before he takes us to the mountaintop. Goodness. God is the final standard of good. Everything that God does is worthy of good. This ties with righteousness, ties with truth. What is good? God. God is good. What is the standard of beauty, of right, of of morality? Good. That which is right is right because God is good. Everything God makes, good, Genesis 1. No good thing does God withhold. All good and perfect gifts come down from God. His goodness affects our ethics. His goodness affects our very definition of how we define what is good. He is the standard in every way of of what we define and believe and understand to be good. which is the struggle for us is good is a really watered down word in English language. Was a good movie? Was a good hot dog? Was a good person? Was a good night's sleep? Good can mean incredible. Most of the time, usually when we mean good, good is like average, right? Oh, how's the movie? It was good. Okay, I don't want to see that. That's, we got to redefine what good is when we, when we see it there in in Scripture, and in the Word of God. Okay. We're going to pause there, because I don't want to short-cheat any of these other attributes at all, uh, with, especially with God's love, His mercy, His grace, His patience, and long-suffering. Here's the incredible reality, though, just based on what we've seen thus far tonight. God is a God who doesn't put up with sin because in no way can he have any part of sin. He is 100% righteous. He is blameless in how he interacts with all people. That righteous standard we've fallen short of, that righteous standard deserves a just response of wrath, which has been paid for in Christ. And if you and I have come to faith in Christ by grace through faith, we have been made righteous in Christ. It means in our lives we are now rightly related to a holy, holy, holy God who is jealous over our lives because he is the one true goodness in which our lives find, uh, find meaning, find value, find hope, find purpose. 
We can trust him. We can rely on him because he is the actual real God. Everything he says is always true and he will be faithful to carry out what is true and he will be good in all his responses even if his faithfulness plays out over time. And so to give you a real simple story to end our time tonight, uh, I would not be here today if it wasn't for all of the things we've looked at tonight being who God is. Now, I could pull out and give you the whole on, but I'll just give you a real specific. When, I, when, I was, when God called me to ministry in high school, I thought God was taking me overseas as a church planning missionary. And so through college, that's where my eyes were headed. I'm not going to be one of those people who flake out on going because I'm really type A and driven and won't quit and sometimes to my own detriment and I do dumb stuff and put myself in the hospital. It's true stories, twice. I am terrified my senior year of college. I don't realize it, but I really don't trust the Lord with what's coming next. But I'm doing it under the guise of, I do not want to be a millennial who moves back in with mom and dad. I don't want to be irresponsible. That's not a bad thing. But it can be taken to an extreme where all of a sudden you, you think it all depends upon you and your effort and this and that. And there was an organization that as I was looking to go to seminary the next year, I thought that's a great, well, one, uh, the job that I thought was perfect would have been to become the RD of I was the, the only three-year guy RA. They'd asked me if I wanted the job four months earlier if it ever came open. And so lo and behold, without me knowing, the job of RD becomes open. Back then it was a $25,000 paycheck, which isn't tons, but you have no living expenses. It's all covered for you. It's just $25,000 in your pocket unless you got student loans, which I didn't. You work a half day in the office and they expect you to go to grad school. You get to do ministry, carry on. I thought it was incredible. That position opened up, and after asking me at the end of the prior year, if that ever opened, would you want it? And I said, yes. They never even talked to me. Not only that, they hired a guy that I trained to be an RA. I was his RA. Now he's my boss. God, what are you doing? Why is that door not open? Found another organization who was going to apply to it. That year, the Super Bowl was in Jerry World, Cowboy Stadium. It's a big deal for Dallas. And I laughed when that week it iced over the whole city and all, the whole week of class was canceled because the, the roads were so bad. Because of that, I found myself down in the gym one day and I, I had developed a relationship with our president at DBU, Dr. Cook, through, through trauma in both our lives that kind of brought us together in a unique way. He said, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm graduating in May. He said, oh my goodness, can't believe that. He said, well, where are you looking at going? So I told him the organization. He said, I know the head. Would you mind if I wrote you a recommendation letter? And of course, I'm like, oh yeah, I'd mind, Dr. Cook. I mean, why would I ever want the president of DBU to write me a recommendation letter? Appreciate you asking. Um, so yeah, write him. And so I, I, he wrote a letter and he got a letter back. And he stuck that letter. He wrote a little note to me on it and had them put it in my mailbox. He said, I want you to see his response. He wrote it to the guy. The guy who was over it was a pastor of a church. He said, I'll take Wes's resume, give it to that group when they start, but I'll also pass it to our youth minister to see if he needs any interns. Didn't think anything of it. Nothing happened from it. Ran into Dr. Cook two different times that year. Nothing happened. And I remember he looked at me one day and he said, Wes, I just feel like God has laid on my heart. I am supposed to help you. And I just am so sorry because I haven't been able to help you. And I don't have any on-campus job I can offer. And you need to understand the weight of that. If Dr. Cook wants you to have a job, you got a job. For him to look at me and say, I have nothing I can give you. That is like supernatural God shutting all the doors. So I go to convention with my grandparents just to be with them, hang out. I had to leave early. And as I, I walk up the stairs to leave, a man grabs me and says, hey, Wes, my name is Brent Taylor. 
I'm the pastor at First Baptist Carrollton. Our youth pastor just left, nothing bad, but left suddenly. We weren't expecting it. It's summer. We need to hire someone as an interim to keep the summer going. Would you be, I'd like to talk to you. Would you be interested in talking? I know you got to go, you're leaving early because you got to work a youth camp, but would you be interested? Okay. So I go meet with Brent at First Baptist Carrollton and, and Glenn, the executive pastor. And um, we, we have a good hour meeting. They call me back a couple days later, one asked the job. I'm terrified. This isn't missions. Like, I'm not a youth guy. I don't light my hair on fire. I don't. And I'm, I'm trying to say no. I, I call Glenn up one day with the purpose of saying no. At my parents' house, they're all gone. I lay out all these concerns, and I can't get the words no out of my mouth. Well, will you let us talk about these concerns? We'll call you back. Yes, and I hang up, and I go, I'm such a coward. I'm supposed to say no. The next couple of days, I had some time to pray about it and realized I'm just terrified because this isn't inside of my control, and it's not what I expected. So obviously, the story goes, I go in, I agree, I realize that. They offer me the job. I go to First Baptist Carrollton as their interim youth pastor. Start on a Tuesday, go to a choir trip meeting that night, Work on Wednesday, pack on Thursday, and at 6 a.m. I hop on a plane to San Diego with 60 students I've never met before in my life. They throw me on a cot in one of the seniors' rooms. And over that fall, as I'm commuting from Fort Worth an hour both ways, up there doing stuff, God starts to do a work in my life that's, that, that throws me for a loop because I really feel like if God will allow me, if God calls me, I should stay there at First Carrollton. But that's not inside of what I thought. That's not what I dreamed. That's not what this is not. Lord, can you call me to stay here versus go? I don't know all this stuff. And so I finally come to a point where I realize, look, God's the one who called me. He gets to decide the when, the where, and the who. So I have this conversation that January with the pastor. I said, look, here's the deal. I've been here. I was supposed to be here two months. It's now eight months. I can't keep driving from Fort Worth doing this. The students need somebody full-time because they've had, I was, I was their fourth youth pastor for some of them. So they need somebody. They're, giving, they're making jokes about, I won't be here that long. Why should they connect? Why should they listen? Why should they? And I said, so that's just objectively that. I said, third is, I don't know if y'all would be interested, but I would be open to staying and having that conversation if that's there. And they said, well, actually, we wanted to meet with you because we haven't looked at anybody. We want to talk to you about staying. So everything goes through, church votes me in. I spent five, a little over five wonderful years at Carrollton as the student pastor. I still hold the record for the longest student pastor in the last 30 years at Carrollton, which is really sad that the average life expectancy of a youth pastor is 18 months in average churches. Now here's the part of the story that's crazy. I was going through my room one night in keepsakes and I found a letter. I found a letter found the letter that Dr. Cook put in my mailbox after that conversation during Super Bowl week where he said, I know the head of that organization. I'd like to write you a letter of recommendation. Pulled that letter out. It's on First Baptist Carrollton stationery because the local head of that organization is Brent Taylor who didn't hire me without knowing me because of my ties to my granddad, though he knew my granddad well. It was Dr. Cook's recommendation that stood out so much. And in that letter, he says, I'll give our youth pastor his resume in case we need interns, not knowing I would be the next youth pastor. Now, I give you that to say in the moment, and that's on a very small couple-year time frame. 
in the moment in my poor little terrified, right out of college graduated heart, God, I don't see how you're faithful. Back up, pull that letter out one night. Oh my goodness, Lord, look how faithful you are. And you close doors in your holiness that would not have been your good for my life. That would have put me other places because it's in my time in seminary and at Carrollton where God really refined and shaped my call where I realized where God was taking me and training me and wanting me to go was not to Timbuktu as a church planner, but was to be a senior pastor, which is why I wouldn't be here today if the attributes we looked at of God tonight aren't the way he plays out in our life, even if it plays out over time and not an instant. He is instantly always those attributes. But he is certainly not in a hurry to work out his good plan. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you are who you are. Thank you that you're holy. Thank you that you deal with sin. Thank you that for those of us in Christ, like you, you have dealt with sin, Jesus. You took it on for everybody. And so for those of us who are in you, oh, Jesus, thank you. We will never know a taste of your wrath. But oh, God, we will know. We will know your holiness. We will know your loving discipline in our lives. We will know all of your promises being amen in Christ. We will know your truthfulness to your word. We will know your faithfulness. Thank you. May we trust you because you are good. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.